This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Anna Machen. Welcome to Why, the podcast that asks the big questions about science, from single-celled amoeba to traveling to the furthest reaches of the universe and everything in between. As an evolutionary anthropologist, I have researched the evolution of man from the moment he emerged six million years ago until today, when big questions are looming about how AI will change us and our lives. These days, we tend to try and innovate our way out of an environmental dead end, which means that, unlike other species, our environment is no longer as influential on us as it might have been when whether or not you could walk on two legs or not was a real survival clincher. However, While the environment might be less of an influence, our ability to innovate has meant that new drivers of evolution have emerged. Take the rise in caesarean sections. In the past, women with narrow hips or babies with larger than average heads rarely survived childbirth and their genes were lost. But the possibility of delivery by section means that these genes are now increasing in frequency in the population. Or take medicine. In the past, life-limiting illnesses meant that certain genes did not remain for long in the gene pool. New treatments, which you'd think would be a cause for celebration, have caused diseases which might have once died out to persist. This raises all kinds of questions about humans' biological future, not least the subject of today's episode. Are we still evolving? The big one, I would argue, is that if you don't have natural selection in the sense of the environment actively killing you, then evolution shifts increasingly from a game of survival of the fittest. Now it all comes down to differential reproduction. So that comes into basically having kids. Dr. Nicholas Longrich is senior lecturer in evolutionary biology at Bath University. We're intelligently designed by other humans saying, you have good genes, let's get together. Now we're turning over that decision-making to computers, to algorithms. And you're gonna have computers saying, hey, you should talk to that person. We're gonna be computer selected. Fascinating and terrifying to think of. Let's get right down to it with the big question. Are we still evolving? Yeah, we're definitely still evolving. You relax some selective pressures, other selective pressures come into play, and they're radically different than anything we've experienced in the past 250,000 years. So we might be evolving more rapidly than at any point in our history. From my own work, I'm an evolutionary 
anthropologist. So my whole life has been about the evolution of humans. And obviously, for most species, the key driver of evolution is changing environment. But I think one thing that makes us stand out is the fact that we can adapt our environment to suit us by the innovation of things like clothing and medicine and shelter. We're not as influenced by it as others are. But bearing in mind, what do you think are the key drivers of evolution today, then, if environment isn't right up there as it used to be? I mean, again, it's just like the, the selective pressures shift. And one interesting example I was thinking about, Lee Van Valen, he was, you know, evolutionary theorist, first paleontologist. He describes these mammals from right after the age of the dinosaurs, like right after the asteroid hit. And he's working on this fauna that's there within a few tens of thousands of years of the asteroid impact. We're reading about these mammals, and he makes this really interesting observation. He says, look, these mammals are evolving like mad. This is right after the asteroid. At the time, they didn't know about the asteroid, but they're seeing this rapid evolution. And he says, you know what a really weird thing about this fauna is? He says, it has basically no predators. Basal Paleocene, within a few tens of thousands of years of the asteroid impact, there's a few crocodiles, but if you stay away from the rivers, you're okay from those guys. There's some small snakes, but they're not going to harass a big mammal. There's basically no predators, but they're evolving really, really rapidly. And so he makes this really interesting observation. He says, look, you know, if there's no predators, then what is driving things? It's going to be the environment, but then also competition between mammals. So in the same way, we've removed a lot of traditional selective pressures, right? Like, so predators were a selective pressure when we were hunter-gatherers in Africa or, you know, even in Europe, you know, you had lions, saber-toothed cats, they were gone. Okay. Disease is less of a selective pressure. War is less of a selective pressure. Starvation is much less common. We've removed all these pressures, but that just means other pressures are going to manifest and we might start evolving in response to those even more rapidly. One thing that interests me, and, and maybe you can answer this, is, is obviously we are biological beings, but we're also very cultural beings. So does the fact that we generate culture and we have cultures and we have cultures that differ between populations, is that possibly a driver of biological evolution? Yeah, you might think because we have cultural evolution and technology that removes natural selection and it removes certain selective pressures, but also creates entirely new selective pressures. So, okay, we domesticate animals. We start making dairy, you know, yogurt and cheese and, you know, drinking milk. Well, now there's a selective pressure to be able to digest dairy products as an adult. We're eating milk, whereas traditionally nurse as a child and then not need to digest milk. So we've, you know, lactose tolerance. We've evolved that. So we've created these selective pressures. Another interesting thing is that our technology allows us to move into environments that might have, you know, very different selective pressures. You know, if we didn't have technology, we wouldn't be able to live in the Arctic. But because we invented things like parkas, for example, and, you know, sawed houses, we could move into the high Arctic. So you have populations like the Inuit. Their technology, rather than necessarily removing all selective pressures, allows them to move into a habitat that's very extreme. And then they have natural selection now operating on them in an Arctic environment. So it doesn't necessarily remove selective pressures. It just creates entirely new ones, potentially. And you mentioned evolutionary change there and the fact that it can be really, really rapid. I think sometimes we think of it as being like a snail and going over generations. And obviously that depends on the rate of, of mutation of the genes, but also on the number of generations or how quick the generations are in the species. Are we, do you think, currently in a period of rapid evolution and which particular areas are we rapidly evolving? Yeah, if you think about it, we have gone through more change in the past 10,000 years than our species has in the past 250,000 years. For the first, you know, 95% of human existence and for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years before that, we were hunter-gatherers. We were big game hunters. We gathered plants. We moved into some environments like, again, like the Arctic, deserts, rainforests, etc. So we inhabited different environments, but we had that same basic lifestyle. 
And then rapidly, we've moved away from hunting and gathering to we grow food and we've transitioned away from growing food to, you know, a knowledge-based economy and working in factories and things like that, working on assembly lines or the local McDonald's. It has been a, a radical change in our lifestyle overnight. We've released all these old selective pressures and that means other things now become much more important. The big one I would argue is that if you don't have natural selection in the sense of the environment actively killing you, you know, lions, diseases, starvation, then evolution shifts increasingly from a game of survival of the fittest, which is not really what evolution is. Evolution is about differential reproduction. You have to survive to reproduce, but if everybody survives more or less, now it all comes down to differential reproduction. So that comes into basically having kids, finding a mate, staying with your mate, raising kids who are themselves going to be able to go out and have kids. It's all going to be about who's able to effectively reproduce in that situation. So, you know, that it just totally changes. The, I mean, that's always been a major selective pressure. It's a huge, a huge driver of human evolution. But now it is arguably the primary selective pressure is just having kids. So now then the pressure isn't to survive, the pressure isn't to get eaten by a lion or not get eaten by a lion. The pressure is maybe to be good at finding mates and keeping mates and reproducing and raising those children to survive. All those sorts of things are actually the selective pressures. Yeah, it's not just about like looking fit. You know, it might be partly like being like, you know, a person can go to the bar and like, hey, being smooth and suave and charming, that ain't gonna hurt. But at the end of the day, if you're very seductive, but kind of a, a terrible parent, you know, your kids might not do very well. And so it might increasingly select for, I guess, maybe optimistically, traits that would make people good partners and good parents, you know, things like patience and understanding and things like that. I mean, another thing it might do is now that we have kind of the option to have kids, we have, you know, birth control and things like that, it might strongly select for people who really, really want to have kids. So maybe very strong drive to parent might be selected for and other people are kind of like more, more meh, like maybe they either have just one or two kids or don't have any at all. I mean, that's a bit speculative, but we're, you know, we're entering a period where a lot of countries are actually a low replacement rate. We're not even having two kids per couple. So populations start decreasing. So people who, who reproduce well in this current environment are going to outreproduce them. We all think of our genome as being static and the genes in it are pretty static. Obviously, they mutate, but we don't get hundreds of new ones all the time. But there's been some really interesting research done recently looking at the role of microproteins in DNA, which were thought to be pretty useless, not really there to do anything. And actually, we've now found that they do have a capacity to influence cellular operations and ultimately might themselves become functioning genes. So what's really exciting for me, and I don't know whether it's exciting for you, is that actually not only is maybe the frequency of genes changing in the gene pool, but we might be adding new ones all the time. There's more humans than there's ever been, right? You know, there's something like there's about 8 billion of us and, you know, the population might peak around 10 or something or, or higher. So setting everything else aside, we're generating more mutations and more new genes than we ever have at any point in history. It seemed to me, we, we have this huge population and just even assuming the mutation rate has been relatively constant, then there's probably just a lot more genetic variation out there. And if select, you know, so it's just kind of this, I mean, that's one of the things that sexual reproduction is good at doing is it's good at just like picking these variants and then just kind of like amplifying them through the population. And so it, it seems to me that not just the selective pressures much higher than they've ever been, the raw material for evolution, the, the variation you need to get those selective pressures, pushing the species in new directions is also higher than it's ever been before. So Based on that, you would also expect more rapid evolution. Mm -hmm.
So we've been talking about the evidence for continued evolution and the mechanisms that underpin that. But I want to look at human evolution from a different angle. With the intense heat in Europe this summer, I think many of us, for the first time, are really seeing climate change in action. But will we be able to innovate our way out of this dead end? Or will good old-fashioned environmental pressure once again become the key driver for human evolution? We have to innovate our way out of this and our species will survive. And I'm confident making that prediction because if I'm wrong, no one will be around to call me out about it. But we've always been pretty good at, at, you know, innovating our way out of situations. There's always been the doom and gloom crowd, the naysayers, the the doomsday scenarios. I mean, going back to, you know, Malthus, who helped give Darwin the idea of, of natural selection, he's like, look, population growth is exponential. Our agricultural productivity cannot keep pace with that. We're headed for a crisis. And then we, we managed with fertilizers and machinery, tractors and genetic engineering plants, we, we invented our way out of it. We've got a pretty good track record on that front, but you know, who knows? It's like predictions are hard, especially about the future. I think there's a reasonably good prediction, like yes, CO2 traps heat, more CO2, it's gonna trap more heat, but exactly what happens, how the environment responds, and then trying to predict what the technology is gonna be, like few people have a good track record predicting the future. I mean, it could be worse, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm saying, yeah, we might, we might save the day, uh, but it might also become very dark, who knows? Ultimately, I mean, your background is paleontology and obviously the dinosaurs had a great innings, but ultimately went extinct. I suppose the question is, is our species going to continue? And because we can keep on innovating and innovating and innovating, we're going to be okay. We might have a reduced population at some point, but we're going to be okay. Or do we have an ultimate end, do you think? Because so many people predict that we are going to go extinct. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I had this one interesting thing. I've been thinking a lot about like, you know, you know, Elon Musk likes to talk about, we need to be a multi-planet species, getting, we're just too vulnerable on this one planet. And then I was thinking like, well, okay, if you look back through Earth's history, we have this like, for the past 4 billion years, this has been the most habitable, safest place to be in the entire solar system, probably for light years around. There's been no place more habitable than this. So even in the, in the, even in, in the midst of a, a terrible mass extinction, like the end Cretaceous mass extinction and asteroid hits, it's still more habitable than Mars, right? You know, it's got normal gravity, it's got oxygen, bit cold, but not as cold as Mars. You'd much rather survive on Earth during the end Cretaceous mass extinction, during an asteroid impact, than try and survive on Mars right now. So I'm thinking like, okay, well, if you look back through through history, it, it's a pretty good bet, right? Like our Earth has a long-term habitability. But there's, there's, a, there's kind of a, a trick in there, which is that like, well, how else could it possibly be? is that like if there had been some event that was severe enough to wipe out all Earth, we wouldn't be here to talk about it. So it's entirely possible that like uh, there are millions of planets and on most of them, something goes badly sideways and wipes out the planet, becomes uninhabitable, and then they never evolve intelligent life. And we're on that one odd planet where you look back through our history and we had a few mass extinctions, everything quite bad enough to set us back to bacteria. And if that's the case, then like, I mean, if you imagine like a gambler going to Vegas and he, he plays the roulette wheel and he wins and wins and wins and wins and wins, just because he's been winning 20 times in a row doesn't mean he's going to necessarily win the next turn of the roulette wheel. And so we, something bad could happen. Yeah, an asteroid could smack us in 100,000 years or a, a passing planet could toss Earth out of orbit. These things, who knows? I don't know. I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, we could be like the dinosaurs. It could be that we do it. And that's the thing. We could do everything right. We could, you know, we could get CO2 levels under control. We could rewild the environment. We could live sustainably and still something might go wrong. So 
it's just that's that's how unpredictable it is. So obviously, one of the major, major innovations, I suppose, of the last couple of decades has been our digital technology and, you know, the, the phone in the palm of your hand and Google in the palm of your hand. And, you know, there have been some very, I think, personally, silly reports in the press about how our addiction to technology might you know, impact is via natural selection. So I think at one point there was a suggestion that our fingers, people are going to be selected to have more agile fingers because then you can scroll through Instagram quicker. Now, do you think today's digital technology is going to drive our evolution in a new direction or it's going to drive evolution at all? Yeah, I, I don't think the fingers one is that likely. I could think of a couple ones is it's really doing a number on our mental health. You know, it, it's distracting us. It's making us stressed because we, we're getting this constant influx of information about, you know, crises and, and, you know, bad things happening in the world or somebody's upset about something, maybe something profoundly important, maybe something silly and stupid, but we're, we're getting bombarded by this. And we're getting stressed out by it, but we can't do anything about it. So it's, it's distracting us. And, and it's been linked to an epidemic of anxiety among young people. So you can imagine that maybe people who are somehow more resistant to that might, might do better. I mean, another weird one is you might, you could imagine like increasingly, you know, as mating becomes increasingly optimized as people are using computer programs, dating apps to find, you know, mates. Well, what's that going to select for? You might have great body language to be very charming pheromones, but those things can't translate there. And so there, you, you lose those advantages and, and basically it all comes down to visual stuff. And so what that would probably select for is attractiveness, facial symmetry, things like that. Yeah, that's one thing I can imagine. But the other thing is that we think of selective breeding as something that we do to animals, like we selectively breed dogs, but we're interesting because we selectively breed each other as a species. Mate choice has been one of the major drivers of human evolution. And so humans breed humans. And that's been one of the, we are kind of intelligently designed, not necessarily by a god or gods, but like we're intelligently designed by other humans saying, hey, I, let's you have good genes, let's get together. Now we're turning over that decision-making to computers, to algorithms. I mean, we're basically, you know, we're gonna get AI involved in this, and you're gonna have computers saying, hey, you should talk to that person. We're gonna be computer-selected to a degree. I mean, it's just, it was just fascinating and terrifying to think of. And you can imagine, okay, I'm some company, and I, I control a dating app, and I can move some little slider that kind of puts these people together or that people together, I am changing the future direction of the species in some small way. Yeah, it's kind of terrifying. And at the same time, reduces the actually very complex process of mate selection to what I think a lot of computer scientists think is a very simple algorithm. But actually, I mean, I study human mating and dating and all that kind of stuff. And the brain is the most amazing dating computer. It's the most amazing algorithm. And I think, yeah, the idea that you could ever particularly at the moment, recreate that with AI is, is, is ludicrous. But you're right, yeah. In the same way we're turning our social relationships over to AI, these very complex, very important things. I mean, one potential thing that it might do is it might create more just kind of intermixing, you know, because these apps allow people to potentially, like, you can match with people thousands of miles away. Potentially, you know, you're, you're kind of very limited in your dating market or who you court, I mean, historically, you know, maybe in medieval times, you might go a half a day's walk or a day's walk to find a potential wife, right? And then, you know, now we have like, you know, okay, now I have cars that allows you to, to go potentially further if you want to go pick up your date in the next town. Aircraft, if you meet somebody, you really like them while you're traveling, you can go and visit them or something. And now you can find somebody literally on the other part of the earth. They could be in Antarctica and you might find the love of your life. There is no limit. 
it might do some really interesting things. So it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, maybe your true love is in, you know, Siberia or something like that. And it might create some really interesting combinations and just increasingly mix up our DNA, which has been happening anyway. What do you think we are missing biologically? Is there anything you think it would be lovely that we evolved? The ability to do or the trait? I think we're honestly pretty amazing the way we are. I mean, just there's like, I mean, there's so many interesting facets to humanity. And there's some bad stuff, you know, our capacity for violence and tribalism, I think is kind of the two big negatives. Maybe, maybe a bit less of that, but like our ability to make music and poetry and to dance, art, creativity. I mean, there's so many amazing aspects of the human condition. We are, are such remarkably complex, rich creatures. I think the big issue I see is, not I don't think we need to change. I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think that the society we've created for ourselves doesn't always allow us to flourish. And it does not always give us the lives. I mean, we can't go back to living in the, as hunter-gatherers in the savannah, obviously. But my feeling is that we have what I call like the caveman mind or the caveman brain. We're still genetically, we're not that, we, we, we've adapted, but not that much compared to our hunter-gatherer ancestors who are hunting mammoths or kudu in the Serengeti. We're basically still stuck in, in the Stone Age. And that means that we're really not well adapted to this, this environment. And I think we need to somehow try and create something going forward. I think we need to change not ourselves, but our civilization and our society to make it a little more like that. In a lot of ways, we're trying to recapture what we lost when we left our hunter-gatherer days behind. And there's obviously limits to how far we can go with that. We just need to reset, maybe. We need to pause and reset and maybe calm down a bit. It's tricky. I don't know. But I think we need to create a society that rather than adapting ourselves to modern civilization, we want to adapt our civilizations to ourselves. So we're in a period of rapid evolution and we're doing pretty well as a species. Perhaps some of our biggest challenges are coming fast, but our ability to innovate will help us through. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Dr. Nicholas Longridge. Yeah, sure, no problem. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Anna Machen asking, why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Anna Machen. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. Thank mm-hmm. you.